Welcome, everybody, to the podcast today, The Week in Bible Prophecy. I'm here with J.B. Hickson. Welcome, J.B. Hey, great to be here, Mondo. Thanks. And we're going to be discussing uh, uh, your new book, The Spirit of the False Prophet. And uh, so there, there's a lot to discuss, which I'm excited about. Um, I know that there's those in our audience that might not have uh, really understood or, or know about your previous, I don't want to say two volumes, but maybe talk about what you've done before and then how you've kind of in the series come into where this particular book is. Yeah. So uh, about 18 months ago, I think it was March of last year, 2022, I uh, published Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1. And in that book, I kind of explain the Luciferian conspiracy, which is a term that's both biblical as well as used in in by the Luciferians themselves to describe Satan's attempt to take over this world. He, he's wanting to take control of this earth and make it his own and have everybody worship him. That's been his goal since he got kicked out of heaven. And along the way, he's using both evil spirits in the celestial realm as well as human accomplices to, to do that. And so uh, Spirit of the Antichrist Volumes 1 and 2 kind of lay out that biblically, but then spend the bulk of the material on what's happening in the world today that's setting the stage for that. So a lot of Satan's earthly accomplices that are out there pulling the strings of power, ushering in deceptive tools and agendas and things like that. Uh, but the new book uh, really kind of takes a little bit different approach and shifts away from the Antichrist, who gets a ton of attention both in the Bible and in prophecy literature, right. to the false prophet. And he's a lesser-known key figure in the end times. He's the second-in-command, kind of the henchman to the Antichrist. But he, even though there's not as much about him in the Bible, there's enough to let us know he plays a key role. And so uh, the main focus of this new book is how he and the Antichrist will use technology to oversee this full-spectrum planetary control grid that Revelation 13 talks about. So the subtitle of the book is Rise of the Global Technocracy. You know, it's, if, you're, if you're listening today, and it's to me, I find it, I find it pretty fascinating because, again, the Bible gives us this, this snapshot. Um, I, it's just a word that in my mind, it helps me in my mind in thinking that it doesn't tell us, you know, step by step, you know, for example, I'll I think about Jesus's birth, Micah 5, 2, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Well, it doesn't give us the details of, you know, a census that takes place by a world ruler, and then they're living up in Nazareth, and it doesn't give a play-by-play. -play. It just gives a snapshot that the Messiah would be born in this place. No other details. And so in the same way, we have this snapshot, which I want to read in, in, in Revelation 13, and, and maybe some of our listeners, you're, you're not as familiar with this as it relates to the Antichrist. As you mentioned, the Antichrist is very well known, but this is Revelation 13. In, you, in verse 1, you have the beast from the sea, uh, which is the Antichrist, uh, basically 1 through 10. And then you have in verse 11, and I would love just to go through this back and forth here, maybe a couple of verses at a time. He, he says, John writes, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. So why do you think we have the first one coming from the sea and this one coming from the earth? That That's an interesting phrase. What's the difference yeah, there? Yeah, well, so first of all, sea is often a sort of a, used as a metaphor for evil. It's, it's kind of, you know, you have the, the global flood and you have in the eternal state, there is no more sea. So there's a lot that we could say about how it's, it's natural that the Antichrist would emanate from the sea. Uh, the false prophet, though, emanating from the earth, uh, you know, he, he's going to have a little bit less uh, prominence, maybe. And, and the fact that he's got two horns uh, instead of the ten, he's going to be maybe 
powerful, but not as powerful. Mm -hmm. He's also less pretentious, right? He doesn't uh, promote himself, um, but he's pretty evil. I mean, he, he, he's not a weak person. He speaks like a dragon and so forth. So I think it's just a in context, it's a contrast between the all-encompassing world leader, the Antichrist, and his second-in-command, the, the false prophet. Yeah, it's so true because I think about, uh, you know, Tehom, you know, the Hebrew for, for sea and, and in Near Eastern uh, mythology, it's it's chaos, it's, it's wickedness, mm -hmm. it's evil. Again, it's something that God uh, seeks to... Um, to create order out of that chaos in Genesis 1. There it is, you have chaos. It's not that it was necessarily evil there because God created it, but using the mythology of Moses writing, people would understood, oh, well, God is, especially if you if you use it as an, uh, as an apologetic against, you know, the, the, the Near Eastern thinking that it wasn't God created this and yet he's creating form and order out of it and he's, he's overruling it. But to me, I, I find it fascinating too that two horns like a lamb so he's coming. Do you think there's a, um, as a lamb, is that just innocence or is that uh, religion? Is it a false religion? Is he taking on the form of of a sort of religious figure here at all? I mean, well, I'm, does, I'm just speaking out loud. Yeah, no, he does have a religious component in the sense that he draws people to the Antichrist. Remember, you've got this unholy trinity where Satan represents God, the Antichrist represents the false Christ, of course, and then the false prophet represents the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's role today is to draw people to Christ. Uh, but in the tribulation, the false prophet's role will be to draw people into this one world religion where they worship the Antichrist. So uh, I don't know that we can bring too much clarity into the technical meaning of lamb or really mm -hmm. what was going on in the mind of the Holy Spirit when he prompted John to write those words. Uh, but I think at the very minimum, it, it speaks of subservience. It speaks of, uh, you know, less power than the Antichrist, but yet, you know, playing a key role in this dynamic duo of, of, of the false prophet and the Antichrist. Yeah, it makes me wonder, too, whether uh, he is going to be received as, as relatively innocuous, but yet he speaks like a dragon. And so people maybe miss, maybe underestimate him because, yeah. you know, he, it's interesting that, well, let's, let's keep going here because to me, I find uh, this pretty fascinating. Verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and he causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So, it's interesting that, number one, we know that the dragon gave his authority to the first beast. And here that 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 authority from the dragon, of course, it mentions that in, in verse 11, is now given over to this other guy, this false prophet guy. But he's the one that's causing all the people on the earth to worship the Antichrist. That's pretty That's pretty amazing power yeah. there. Yeah. So like I said, I, I don't see the lamb there as a indication of his docility or... Mm -hmm humility or anything like that. I think it's more of a contrast with the sea. You know, the sea, as we've already talked about, represents evil and all the evil chaos and things. The lamb is a, it was a, in, in that culture, in that day, it was a very functional aspect of society. It was a part of the sacrificial system. It was a part of, you know, the industry and commerce, the wool and so forth. So I think it's just an indication of his role, but make no mistake, he's, and, and by the way, I have a chapter in the book on historical henchmen and lackeys and, and, and sidekicks and so forth. And it's always interesting how they often do the heavy lifting. They're the ones that are the, that, the, the, the 
force guys that kind of come in and force people to do this. So uh, he is going to force people to take the mark. He's going to oversee that beast system. He's going to, you know, force people to worship the Antichrist. So I think he's he's going to be like a dragon. You know, and it, it, to me, the, the, your chapter on, on the, 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 the number two guy was very yeah. good because yeah. it reminds you that the, the number one guy can almost sometimes have a, a plausible deniability. Like, you know, he's, he's staying out of the fray. Yeah. He doesn't need to be the one that pulls the trigger, so to speak. He kind of stays in, in his own zone and he allows his guy to certainly further his agenda. Yeah. But the guilt's on him, so to speak. Yeah, that's, that's chapter four. You know, I really enjoyed researching that. So just a quick rundown on that chapter. I talk about three key times in world history. I go back to the Roman emperor and I talk about Marcus Vespanus with uh, Augustus and then the Middle Ages with Genghis Khan uh -huh. and Subatai, which a lot of people don't even know his name, but he was a fierce second in command. And then more, more modern day, most people would know about Hitler and Joseph Goebbels. Uh, but then another part of that chapter is I kind of talk about U.S. vice presidents. And uh -huh. you know, I always pick out a few moments in my books where I can think after the fact, I look back and that's going to cause me a problem. <laughs> where I've got some statements in there that's going to kind of ruffle a few feathers, I think, about yep. some famous uh, vice presidents like LBJ, for yep. example, with the Kennedy assassination and so forth. So, uh, But, you know, the second in command can play a variety of roles. They can they can actually be more powerful than the second in command. Now, that's not going to be the case with the false prophet and Antichrist. But uh, either way, they're a dynamic duo, and that's what we see in the in prophecy. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me of, of Second Thessalonians 2, where the Antichrist's administration comes with all power and signs yes. and lying wonders. And it seems to be here that... A lot of those, well, verse 13, uh, he performs great signs so that he even, uh, he, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So that, that given, th this is the key. A lot of this we're going to see here. It was given. It was given to him. So we know, we know that the Antichrist uh, is given authority from, from not only the dragon, but even God in sovereignty is, is allowing this to take place. But, that administration in Second Thessalonians 2 seems to be a lot being implemented or executed by this guy. Yeah. Yeah, no, he is. He's as, at the midpoint of the tribulation, things take a turn, and this false prophet sort of becomes more prominent. And and because the Antichrist role starts out as a peacemaker, right? He's kind of this world figure that, that creates world peace by orchestrating this treaty and protecting Israel. Uh, and of course, in the first three and a half years, there is all sorts of hell breaking loose, the judgments of God, and, and, and it's a, not a pleasant time on earth, but as it relates to geopolitical events and Israel in particular, Israel is protected. But at the midpoint, three and a half years in, that's when the, the Antichrist breaks that treaty, and now he sets himself up as God in the temple. And his role is is really more, instead of being a world leader and orchestrating things, he's kind of the, the God on the throne, little g, and now the false prophet steps in, and he's kind of the face of the administration. Yeah, you know, you see... Uh... Uh, in my mind, when you think about the the Antichrist in that first part, um, he he's coming as a blasphemer. He talks big things, you know, as Daniel describes him, um, you know, pompous words. D do you think, as they are experiencing the the, the seal judgments, you know, again, fourth of the earth, dead famines, mm -hmm. other things, and uh, people are recognizing, I think clearly in in, in Revelation six seventeen, they're recognizing that the the wrath has has already began mm -hmm. in my mind. Mm -hmm. But do you think that he is um, leveraging that to 
to speak evil against the God who is causing these judgments. Oh, and, yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah, I think so. I think it's the world's going to know that God's wrath is being poured out on them. As you said, at the end of Revelation chapter six, they're saying, who will hide us from the wrath of God? They mm -hmm. know the source of this wrath. So I think Satan is going to um, be, I mean, the Antichrist, who I believe Satan indwells, mm -hmm. according to Second Thess 2, is going to be doubly motivated on the one hand he's just angry he's a victim too i, yeah. I imagine yes. playing the, look at look at yeah. us yeah look at what the god of heaven yeah. is doing against us yeah right you know it's it's it's, it's kind of like you know uh trump you know he finally gets to be president and the pa pandemic breaks out <laughs> exactly. oh great you yeah. know and so uh so you know he's the world leader but he's dealing with all of this chaos and this judgment of god uh, you know on the world um so i think that's going to make him even angrier. And you do see in Revelation this juxtaposition between the the wrath of God, the orge, and the wrath of Satan, same word, orge. Mm -hmm. And so, but I think also he's then going to flip it, just like you just said, and use that to blame God and harness people's support and say, hey, you know, you, you come onto my side, you know, and at the midpoint, take this mark, this sign of allegiance, and together we can defeat this God, because the last three and a half years yeah. are just ratcheting up, leading to the climactic battle outside uh, in the Valley of Megiddo. And so, yeah, I think he's definitely going to use that as leverage for sure. Yeah. It, it, and, and as you see the progression in Revelation Day, uh, Revelation 9 and 16, as, as, as it continues, it's almost like they're repeating the, the mantra that they curse God, right? They don't repent. They curse God mm. for, for the hailstones. They curse God for this and they refuse to repent. So, uh, verse 14, we'll just keep going here. This is, is I think, it, it, as you're listening today, we're, we're trying to set the stage for, for what JB has written in his book uh, about this, the, the false prophet. And 